Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 108. It is I, Matthew, pmbigelow.com. That's where you can go to get the show notes, photos related to the show, and more. Matthew, pmbigelow.com. And of course, this is the podcast that covers AI markets, news analysis, odd items, and rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific region from the perspective of uh, news media in Japan and about Japan from around the world. And all of that. Thank you for joining us today. Busy day today. I thought we'd begin with some odd items. Uh, not a hate read. People who listen to the podcast will sometimes know that I hate read a website called Sora News 24 um, for new products. But this one's kind of interesting and um, it's, it's, it's falling into my overall arc of uh, what, what Japan's future looks like overall in terms of demographics, immigration and uh, how, how Japan will be able to contribute to the real economy in the next 100 years or so, not the stupid green economy or the um, crypto economy, even though that's going to be there in one way or another. But I actually mean the things that you go out and buy, and this is an example of that. Yamaha adopts wood-based reinforced resin for watercraft. I'll read that again. Yamaha adopts wood-based reinforced resin for watercraft. Now, you may know Yamaha as a Japanese company that makes everything. Saxophones, motorbikes, you name it, Yamaha <clears throat> has the facilities to build it. But that's not the, the contribution of, of Japan in the future. And if you ever looked at um, the materials sciences in Japan and, and, and sort of why Tokyo water is safe to drink and all this stuff, it's the ability of... Japanese scientists to kind of find out uh, new polymers or new bio something and blend it together with something else that mixes it in with uh, uh, an important layer for a process that companies all over the world need and improve upon that process and then corner the market there and everybody ends up using it in one way or another, but the average person wouldn't even notice that it's there. It's one of those types of things where, where we can where we can see future contributions because I'm kind of worried about the future right now. Um, in the macro level, like, woo. <laughs> Yamaha Motor Co. announced, a, uh, and I'll be posting a picture of this um, Yamaha Wave Runner personal watercraft onto MatthewPMBigelow.com. There's a very uh, muscular and handsome white dude riding it, and that says something about possible um, uh, political allegiance. No, it doesn't. Uh, Yamaha Motor Co. announced a world first in its decision to adopt plant-derived cellulose nanofiber reinforced resin for use in parts in its 2024 line of speedboats. Nanofiber. If you're a dude, you probably listen to that and go, hmm, nanofibers, huh? That sounds like... Like a reinforced titanium or some sort of thing, yeah. Yamaha said it will consider incorporating the eco-friendly material into its mainstay product, motorcycles, in the future, adding that the initiative is aimed at reducing carbon dioxide emissions as well as the company's environmental footprint. Now, this whole idea of reducing carbon dioxide emissions may be okay. Getting rid of carbon, people who say, we need to get rid of all the carbon. I'm like, well, we're kind of carbon-based life forms. What are you talking about? But I remember reducing carbon dioxide emissions as being the environmental thing to do uh, because there's a, a lot of 
bad things in the pollutants that emit from factories with a lot of CO2. That I can get behind. But when people say they start with carbon dioxide, then they say carbon footprint, and then they say like all carbon must go. It's like, hmm, don't agree with that. And, you know, reducing an environmental footprint from a major corporation's perspective might be a, not a bad idea either, is it? Uh, by using reinforced resin, Yamaha is aiming to reduce the weight of its rave, wave runner personal watercraft as well as cut down on the use of conventional plastic. The cellulose nanofiber developed by Nippon Paper Industries Co. is manufactured by mashing wood extracted pulp, mixing it with a small amount of plastic and rubber results in high strength resin. It is the first time for components made of this type of resin to be mass-produced for personal watercraft or other vehicles. The reinforced resin, which is used for engine covers, is 25% lighter than conventional plastic. Another advantage is that it can be recycled and reused repeatedly. The wood-derived material is expected to help slash CO2 emissions. We already know that! Yamaha and Nippon Paper Industries embarked on the development of reinforced resin in 2018 with an eye toward commercial application of the substance. The company said it decided that personal watercraft, such as speedboats, would be the first to use the components made of CNF resin, as that's the nanofiber resin, as they carry a sufficient high price tag to absorb the cost of the material. Watercraft utilizing the resin arrived in the North American market in August. They sell for around $13,000 or 2 million yen, about the same level as earlier models. Yamaha is looking to release them in Japan as well. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, quote, quote. We will be moving to take advantage of the material for high-end motorcycle bodies and other parts too, said a company representative. And, um... So as we can see, it's it's it looks like a regular watercraft. And if you if somebody said that's my personal watercraft for enjoying my water time when I go to the water, you would look at it and go, well, that looks like what a watercraft should look like. It doesn't have some sort of future design. It doesn't have like eco, um, you know, stop the eco de destruction themes painted on it, like some sort of environmental messaging system. It's just something that is made that cuts down on plastic, is very useful for an application, is applied into the manufacturing process, and ideally will make the product better, easier to use, and more environmentally friendly. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of this mind where everything has to be super environmentally friendly. Is th that, that messaging is just to make people feel better about the trash that they buy. I used to work in a shipping and receiving warehouse and university, and like we threw away an incredible amount of garbage every day. I used to work in Subway when I was a teenager, an incredible amount of, of waste every day. But the messaging on all the buildings is, and all the products is like, we care about the environment. If you buy this product, you're caring about the environment. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people assembling the product and selling it to you are just throwing away unbelievable amounts of trash. <laughs> but uh, so with the messaging aspect of it all, it's, it's hogwash. But with um, when you apply the sciences and the materials into products and, and produce them, you end up with hopefully better quality products that have less of a, of a stain on the environment. There we go. That's today's new product. Do you think, is it is it a good thing or is it not a good thing? Is it a good thing? Oh, is it? Not a good thing.
All right. We are going to jump right into um, Society 5.0 for today because we got to. It's not actually that, that crazy today. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit... And of course, that is the uh, Japanese government's Japan Society 5.0 initiative, public-private partnerships to, you know, make, transform J- Japanese society into a digital uh, paradise. I think it's a digital utopia or digital garden state, something like that. Kind of the garden state coming from Singapore and how it's always so green and nice there. Uh, Japan, um, the cities, maybe not so much, but... Uh, that, that's like an all-encompassing um, AI term where they, Japan Society 5.0. I worked at the Japanese telecom industry that was specializing in AI for a while. It still is. Um, and they were just uh, IPO'd ARM. And I was teaching a lot of the senior uh, executives there, as well as a lot of the AI engineers and just telecom engineers. And um, I got a real grasp for um, AI markets and, and strategies and so on. And Japan Society 5.0 is evolving with time and it's still relevant, even though it was launched in 2016. Um, so that's Japan Society 5.0. And the reason I put all the AI stuff under here is because it just, in, it's not like here's a crazy AI thing. And then the next day it's here's another crazy AI thing. And, and the public doesn't understand how they're connected necessarily. It's just, here's something crazy. Now react. Like the Japanese Society 5.0 is an all encompassing umbrella for these technologies for the next hundred years of uh, Japanese life. Um, Now, have you ever heard of the digital twin? It sounds a little crazy, but a digital twin is only, um, it's, it's, it, it's the data represented of a physical object in the cloud. So for example, if you have a theme park and you have a roller coaster, and you put some sensors into the roller coaster, how fast it's moving, the height that it's moving at, um, the position on the track where it's at. Uh, and then you copy all of that in, onto a, a cloud server, like you put data transferring equipment into that roller coaster. And then you get some graphics teams together. You can you you can then mimic the the roller coaster, the data of the roller coaster on like a, on a, on a dashboard with some graphics in real time as that roller coaster is going around the tracks. You can also put sensor data sensors into the tracks itself. Um, you know, weight bearing loads or, um, with cameras is something wrong or something missing. Um, and then, you know, the, Real time or near real time status of a roller coaster track with the with the roller coaster cars on the cloud, based on IoT and, and all that. That's a that's a digital twin, and it sounds nutty, but the idea has been around for a while, and it's really big in the enterprise industry, 
especially for doing things like training exercises. So if you have a, um, if you're the operator of a dam and you're training a whole bunch of new people and you have the um, data of the uh, turbines or turbines uh, of the dam, um, you can take that real-time data and use it for training exercises. And then you give people, for this, this is kind of a far-fetched idea, but you give people like a HoloLens uh, or a VR goggles, and then they can see a digital representation of the turbine that they're going to be working on. And then the data that they see is that on the turbine, it's like, it's listed in, in like numbers in front of you, but you can see how fast it's turning. You can see the time of day. You can see the weather conditions and all that. But it's the actual data that the turbine is working on. So instead of like the traditional method of education where you'd be opening books and looking at maybe an older version of the uh, model of a, of a turbine model with, with speculative or non-real um, uh, data that, that you would have to evaluate to, to do the training exercises on. This digital twin basically means that when you go to do your training for very technical applications, you see what you're going to be working on as a hologram. It's not the real thing, but it's much better than a textbook in many cases. And the data that you're working with for the training exercise is the real-time data that is being sent from the sensors to a cloud and then to the data training center for the recruits to work on and stuff like that. So the idea is that you get way better, more realistic, hands-on application um, training exercises instead of um, relying on uh, theoreticals or um, maybe a training manual that's out of date or maybe working with people that aren't good with books but are very good with their hands. This is a way better way to do such training. Um, so it can work for uh, dams, it can work for um, things like theme parks, and it can also work for, oh, what was that other idea I just had in my brain that is now gone? Uh, doesn't even matter. So anyway, so Japan to develop brain biodigital twin technology. And that's going to be the title for today's show. Brain biodigital twins. To focus on the early detection and prevention of dementia, depression, and other diseases. So this comes to us from biospectrumasia.com. Um, and the idea of having a our, our physical... Um, situations as a digital twin is also a very scary idea for many, me included. Uh, but when you think about the idea of the criminally insane, uh, or they should be taking their medications and they often don't want to. So by having um, sensors that can, there's these crazy things called uh, digital meds where there's a sensor embedded in the, in the pill and you drink this pill or take this pill and it doesn't have any batteries inside of it, but it reacts with the stomach acid in your stomach, and then the sensor is destroyed, but before it's destroyed, it sends a signal to like a Bluetooth device that you have strapped to your arm because you're criminally insane and you need to have such things. And then that sends from the Bluetooth device to like a Wi-Fi access to then to the doctor so that he can tell if the criminally insane patients are taking their meds or not. It's like a reinforcement of schizophrenia where you say to your friend, hey, I think that the government is injecting me with technology and then that technology is sent into the cloud where the doctors read it. And then they say, no, you're crazy. Let's put you into a hospital where they do just that. Um, so there's this idea of brain biodigital twins and it's scary for many, but for 
people who have Alzheimer's or for um, taking medications for the criminally insane, having digital twins, I mean, it wouldn't be like your whole twin. It's not like you're going to be like, I can't tell which is which. Are you guys fraternal twins or what? You know, it's not going to be something like that. It's a terminology where the data situation of an aspect that's being monitored is also being monitored in real time in the cloud. And then they can, instead of using predictive analytics, like, hey, if the patient is taking all their medication here, we can predict that it's going to be like this there. No, they can take the situation as it's happening uh, more or less, and then use that to make the, the the prediction that would be most likely for that person on that outcome. And they can also correlate that with all the other people on those meds too. Anyways, so NTT Corporation and the National Center for Neurology and Psychiatry in Japan have entered into a partnership agreement to develop brain biodigital twin technology. The collaboration will focus on applying this groundbreaking technology to detect and de- prevent dementia, depression, and other mental illnesses. That's the way they always begin this as well before they roll it out to the rest of us plebs. Is for dementia. That's okay, right? Well, yes, it is. It's for the criminally insane. Well, that's okay, right? Well, yes, it is. And it's also for other applications. They're like, well, what other applications? They're like, shut up and put this on. Okay, that means me. Um, that eliminate the need for invasive and costly testing of various brain diseases. By implementing NTT's artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies, the brain biodigital twin technology has the potential to be uh, to truly personalize medicine, helping to prevent medical errors and accelerate drug trials. Um, it doesn't really go on to very many um, details there. It's kind of a press release. Uh, but it says, by bringing together accumulated data and knowledge, these companies will begin to build a platform for processing brain biodigital twins in fiscal year 2024. In the next three years, the organizations plan to model several brain and nervous system functions and diseases. Subsequently, the organizations will cooperate with pharmaceutical regulations on pressing issues that require the development of effective therapeutic medicines and aim to create a practical system. So blah, blah, blah. It's a kind of a promotion. You get to see it there. But I'm including it at the top of the... Um, the the podcast here because it's well it sounds crazy that's one thing for sure brain bio digital twin technology but also just to say to everybody that yeah this this stuff is happening it's going on the the government knows about it the government's planning for it with the Japan Society 5.0 initiatives and there's all these things all over the world and then it's also using the World Economic Forum's uh, plans to decarbonize us all and we don't know if it's going to be good or if it's going to be bad this was kind of a weird one, but you can kind of like um, anticipate this type of medical treatment in the future where instead of just saying, if the patient takes this, then we can assume that. Um, The assessment in such cases will be the patient is this, so then it's more likely that it will be that. Um, And they can also compare that data between other other people and, and and compile it to see the effects and and also if the person has a, a another disease versus somebody who has another disease they can take like the brain disease of two people that have the same brain diseases and then take their illnesses that might be different from each other and track their trajectories um through their um to their deaths yes indeed so that's that um society 5.0 now, the other one that I want to bring up just very quickly is uh, Japanese school students see how AI can help farming. 
Now, with that other like digital twin bio stuff in the brain, I don't really mind it if it's analyzing like brain weight and then if they're doing cognitive testing to see the progression and and all of that. I'm, I'm sure all that data is really out there, but maybe to have the data to be more up to date or available in real time to the doctors that need it, that could be very helpful. I don't like it when they do the, they try to inject us with like psyops and predictive programming to then determine how likely will we, we will be to follow a CIA plot or something like that. There's a whole lot of stuff that's being developed like that as well. But what I am in support of, because the technology is coming to us, whether we like it or not, uh, more and more and more and more and more and more and more is that if we apply the technology to the things around us, uh, we will be able to reap the benefits way more than if the technology is applied into us. Except for, you know, what I mean by that is if you're just a regular healthy pe- person going about your daily shit, maybe you don't need to have a bunch of biometrics analyzing your every move to try to sell you a, a coupon in an IoT platform as you enter a mall in, in, at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday. It, that's, that stuff is just too weird and crazy. And, and it's like, oh, I got a coupon on my phone. For chips, it's I don't need it, but it's there, you know. But so, but when you apply the technology onto things around us, like farming, especially, and in Japan with our declining population, we might need more support for farms. AI could do that. This comes to us from NHK, and I've been following AI and IoT and farming for many years now, and it's one of the main beneficiaries of this technology. Let's begin. From NHK, September 6th, so not exactly super new, but maybe you didn't know about it. Japanese junior high school students in the northeastern city of Akita have been given an opportunity to see how artificial intelligence can be applied to farming. The Akita City Horticulture Promotion Center started holding the farming experience event last year to encourage people to take up the profession. Seven second-year students from Iwamisamai Junior High School took part in the event. The center's official explained the current situation and challenges facing agriculture. They include labor shortage and increasing age of farmers. The students were taught, like, Jesus, I, one thing I hate about like this stuff, we're into the fifth paragraph. Just tell us what the AI is first and then get into that shit later. I should have rewritten it. The students were taught that one of the solutions is smart farming. Uh, the students saw tomatoes cultivated using AI and how their growth is controlled using a tablet computer. The tablet computer is just the interface, right? AI is used to automatically supply the optimum amount of water and fertilizer to tomatoes, taking into account soil humidity and the weather forecast. The students harvested tomatoes grown with the help of AI and compared them with those using conventional methods. One student said, We can see AI is used to manage fertilizer and moisture levels efficiently. I think it's a very good thing. Um, So there we go. Very simple, very easy report. But if you have some um, heat cameras, some thermal imaging cameras inside your greenhouse, your hothouse there, and you can monitor the situation of the soil humidity, you you know maybe one part of the one part of the the hothouse has more moisture than the other, or the soil in one section needs water, and you didn't notice it because it looked wet on top, but the soil's dry on the bottom. Some some stupid reason like that. It, it, all you need to do is like look at the the charts that are being monitored in real time and go, oh, that needs some water over there. Boop. And then you know the tomatoes in that section 
might improve by 10 to 15%, but overall you end up getting a lot better tomatoes and more tomatoes that can sell to more people who want to have these tomatoes. Uh, very simple, but very efficient usage of the technology. And one idea with the declining population in Japan is that we need to bring in hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions and millions and millions of foreigners to farm the fields. And not sure if that's the best idea. I kind of like this idea of like a farmer stepping out in the morning with his like couple of drones that sweep the farm to to monitor the situation, um, scan for invasive species, and 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 do some uh, uh, some analytics, and then also have like a couple of uh, other like uh, dog drones or even real dogs with dog drones that work together, and he steps out and you know kind of like this techno farmer, techno farmer, a tech, a tech enabled farmer. I mean, that would attract me to do farming. That would just sound awesome. Like I got to get my drones ready and my drone dogs and my real dogs. And you step out and you have like this sort of all encompassing image and look and super deep knowledge about the situation on your farm and then use that to your best advantage. And then maybe have conventions with other farmers to see how they're using the tech and form small little collectives. And then you have repair centers where drones that needs like their propellers repaired can go over there and all of that. But what we see more and more increasingly is just like, no, we want a giant Chinese corporation to handle all of that. Then they, they airdrop it to you. And then on a subscription service, you'll have repairs sent to you when you need them four or five times a year. So they kind of pollute the idea here of like small farmers and stuff like that. They really don't want the technology in the hands of the people. They want the the people just to use the technology in their hands and then have the power sucked right up to the top, the very, very top. So you have like these giant international bureaucracies that push themselves right into the farmer's faces with AI recognition software technology and the cameras. And those people then can see if the farmers are violating the vague rules that they're implementing and saying, no, you can't fly your drone more than 30 minutes in the morning because of noise complaints. Uh, you will be docked 50 social credit points and all that. That seems to be where it's actually all heading. So we've got to be careful about that too. A um, couple of more things. Uh, Quantum computing startup Nanofiber Quantum Technologies secures $8.5 million in funding. And we also have this last one that I'm going to be posting the, the charts and the links to MatthewPMBigelow.com. And it's this stupid title, but it says Centaurs and Cyborgs on the Jagged Frontier. And all it, all it is is just showing how companies that are using AI tools you know, it sounds so stupid to say AI tools because I see so much spam about it. But all it means is like, um, instead of asking somebody to make minutes for a meeting, you just ask the AI to make the minutes for the meeting. Like, so you have a transcript and you say, um, AI, please, please make this into a bullet format. And then, um, you know, reference the top 10 used most words or something like that. AI is pretty good at that these days. So instead of asking like a secretary to do it and she says, or he says, oh, okay, I'll get right on that. It's on my list of things to do. And they go back and they have a giant stack and then they go for lunch and then they end up talking to someone about their thing and did, 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 and it eventually gets back to you. And by the time it gets back to you, you kind of forgot what it was. All it is, is just like just doing all of those mundane tasks and it's collecting it and sending it back to you after like a minute or two. 
and then you can understand the situation or, or get it out of your, your fucking inbox because you're filled with so many mundane tasks to do and your stupid jobs all day. And then it's done. It's just, it's sent, it's done, it's over. And then there might be like a couple of grammar mistakes, but nobody really cares about such things when it's all in-house. As long as it's done, it's just done and it's out. And then it's probably more accurate than a lot of what the um, uh, workers are doing in such cases because they're not exactly experts in the fields that they're taking uh, notes for anyways, but a large language model kind of is. So there is that. So that'll be posted onto MatthewPMBigelow.com. And that is it for today's Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0 a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities, helping us enjoy more fulfilling lives. Society 5.0, for the betterment of human lives. And the WEF. Let's take a look at um, what's happening in Japan right now. So um, my brother was in town last week and uh, all throughout COVID, there were so many things that were shut down and I had a couple of kids and I used to be Mr. Go Out Guy. I was playing a lot of shows, a lot of live shows with bands and music throughout the years. Nothing ever big, but, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people would come uh, or go to shows for other people's lives. I I loved going to shows. And I loved going out to restaurants. And I did that for like 10 or 12 years, ever since I moved to Japan. Then COVID closed and now it's back open and everything's back apparently, but it's not. I mean, it's crazy different now. Um, So my brother was in town and I I took him to some places and I noticed that like everything is different. For example, went into a ramen shop that like a year and a half ago, it was all Japanese people went in there the other day. There was only one Japanese person there and all the other workers were Vietnamese. Um, I could tell by the language and, and the ramen was fine, but, it, but it, the place went from like a 9.5 out of 10, like mind blowingly awesome ramen to a 7.5 out of 10. The staff weren't friendly. Vietnamese men generally aren't friendly, you know, unless they're trained in the restaurant industry. I've gone into Vietnamese owned restaurants and, in Japan, and they kind of obviously had like culinary training with service minded, and and I could tell. But these guys are just like I don't know where they're from, and they they made okay ramen. They followed the menu, but with the supply chain breakdown and all that, and the the increase of uh, feed and all that, the chashu, the pork chashu, and the ramen wasn't as tasty either. So. 
uh, it went down. And then um, I've been working in the Shimbashi area for about uh, on and off like 10 years as well. And I remember just being able to go down there and you would be able to walk into almost any place and get a good meal and, 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 and it would be fine. But now because of the COVID lockdowns and everything like that, so many Japanese people had to leave the restaurant industry. But now the country is open and tourism is back like crazy. So there's this huge demand for workers. And now a lot of the um, people working in the restaurants there are like uh, Chinese or Taiwanese and stuff like that. And it's it's just a little bit different. And they're touts as well. So they're constantly calling in people. Like you're in the middle of ordering something and the person you're talking to will turn their back on you and start shouting at people to try to get into the restaurant. Uh, Japanese people don't generally do that when you're ordering with them. I mean, the service level in Japan is impeccably high. On top of that, because so many young people have left and gone who's who knows where, uh, went into like a fast food burger chain restaurant, Moss Burger, and all like, almost everybody in there, all the workers were like 70 or 80 years old. I'm not joking. They're trying to operate touch screens for like menus and stuff like that. They have no idea what they're doing. It's kind of cute, but at the same time, they spend so much time trying to interact with the menus that they, they the fries get cold and, and as they're waiting for them for to be served and all that. So, in the past three years is what I'm saying is, is that there's been a, a, an insane amount of change going on in Japan. Like, it's crazy. Um, and it has to do with, yeah, young people leaving um, the industry, you know, never to come back. Massive amounts of tourism and then um, demographics coming in as well. Um, it also leads to uh, a total change in in what Tokyo is, uh, the yen has crashed in value and tourism is exploding, but people are coming here on the cheap. So it's turning into like coast, some not coast, uh, like tourism streets in Thailand, almost where it's like just full of budget travelers drinking beers outside and throwing their garbage everywhere. It used to happen a little bit, but I mean, you can kind of like Im- imagine the the amount of people in a certain budget range coming to a country and it's like, you know, the high-end people are this amount and the low-end people are this amount. Well, the low-end people coming into Japan right now, they're still high-end, they're still medium-end, but the amount of low-end travelers have just, boom, exploded. And it's also attracting um, uh, nuisance streamers where, where, where streamers will come to Japan and, and do YouTube streaming or uh, Twitch streaming, or there's all these other platforms now. There's just been an, ex- uh, an explosion in the offerings. And they, they, they fashion these Bluetooth speakers onto their chests, turn them up really high, and then do live streaming. And then their fans will give money to them and then play loud music or porno stuff. And they're in the middle of a restaurant and like just crazy sex music or sex sounds are coming out of this Bluetooth speaker. And the YouTubers are just like, what, what, what do you, so they, they react for the content and then, then they get donations for it. I mean, if, if the yen was, was, was back to where it was like uh, two years ago, these people wouldn't be able to afford to come here as much, but the, the yen is so low, it's attracting just a whole bunch of shitty low end people. So it's like Khao San Road in Thailand, which is what I'm also hearing in. 
And the, the decrease in the restaurant experience shocked the hell out of me as well. I remember just being like the, the old mantra was like, you could just go anywhere, go into any place and it's going to be good. Well, no longer. I went into ramen. I went into izakaya. I went into fast food and the situation was always just a little bit same, but a little bit different, but not very good. Um, and that's led to a lot of high-end or, or restaurants with very good repute reputations to limiting who can come into their restaurants. They don't want all this low-end trash coming into their restaurants and ruining their reputation, which they've held on to during the pandemic. So only only invited guests are able to go into these restaurants now. And I read about that in Bloomberg, and I was like, what's your problem? This was before I went out the other week oh, over and over and over again to encounter the same situation. What's your problem, Bloomberg? Just go to a restaurant without a reservation. Well, you run into the problems I just talked about. Um, and now what we have is um, the Shibuya mayor saying, don't come for Halloween. Uh, 20, 15 years ago, Halloween didn't exist in Japan. It didn't exist at all. And even Japanese people would say, we don't need Halloween. I don't ever see it coming to Japan. And then 10 years later, boom, is the biggest event of the year. I used to play shows in ha on Halloween in Shibuya. I've done it a few times. Uh, always was so super fun. Like just the costumes were nuts, the celebration, just a real festive, real festive atmosphere. But then in the past five, six years or so, just a little too much people. And it's on the point where something could go down, like a cramped street gets too many people and then they get crushed, like what happened in uh, Korea, South Korea a few years ago. Or um, somebody decides to start some shit. I don't know. It, it, it feels like it's not good. So with the amount of trashy tourists coming into Japan and the amount of people wanting to celebrate post-COVID, uh, Japan is kind of becoming like this black hole of crappy tourists. And I wouldn't advise going out in Shibuya for Halloween anymore, by the way. It's too nuts. Uh, there's a heavy police presence and people are trying to like turn over cars and stuff like that. It gets weird really quickly. Um, so there's that. So these are like overlaying comparisons that cover the similar thing. Don't come for Halloween, says the mayor. Um, uh, lack of Japanese workers is leading to a real change in, in, in the restaurant experience in Japan. A lot of these restaurant owners are very old as well. And so they, they just age out and then it gets replaced with something completely different. And as we all know with over-tourism, over-tourism is like the least authentic experience you could ever hope to have. It's like going to the airport and like looking for some sort of local treasure. I mean... That's kind of what over-tourism becomes. You just kind of cut and paste an airport experience onto a town, and the town infrastructure kind of tries to incorporate that experience. But eventually you just lose out to the kind of massive demand of the general public blah. And so, like, the sushi becomes less good. The hamburgers become less good. I worked in tourism in, in Canada as well. Similar thing. That person's never coming back. You're serving a person from Africa. Then the next person's from Japan. Then the next person's from Cameroon. Then the next person's from Thailand. The next person's from France. Then in England. These people don't have anything in common. And they're just passing through to get their stomachs filled before they go on to the next kind of touristy experience. So Japan is going through that right now. It used to be 
uh, a place of the future, and it used to be a place that was kind of expensive, and it used to be a place that was really regarded as authentic, but it's t- turning in, and turning into like a Kaosan Road. And I've been reading some other reports of of people that used to come to Japan from Thailand and go back to um, Thailand after that. And they were saying like the planes were always filled with Japanese tourists, but now the planes going to Japan from Thailand and from uh, Japan back to Thailand are generally filled with Thai people on vacation. So we're really seeing like this super reversal of the Japanese experience. And a lot of that has to do with the aging population, the demographics and all of that. Um, Let's take a look at some of these news articles that reinforce these things. Um, Let's begin with this one. One in 10 Japanese are older than 80. Now, I love this idea of um, having a good time when you're old. But a lot of like liberal types will say, you just need to increase immigration and all your problems are solved. Or they will say like, they say Japan is full. Well, look at this picture. And it shows like a beautiful field and like next to a mountain. It's like you can put some people there. But it's like, well, do you really think 150,000 people from Bangladesh and Vietnam want to come to Japan to live in the woods? And they're like, well, you need to develop it. Well, that's not an easy thing either. Like, how do you develop something for 150,000 foreigners that are going to live in this one zone? I mean... These people are going to start shooting all over the country because that's just what people do. So you want to contain them? You want to build like an open-air prison for the image? It just makes no sense. So I'm not saying I know the the solution or the idea. I, I, I lean towards technology and some immigration. That would be like my thing. But just opening up the floodgates is not a good idea. One in 10 Japanese are older than 80, according to government data. And this comes to us from Japan Today via the AFP, the French people. And I'll be posting a picture of some old dudes having a beer compai onto MatthewPMBigelow.com, where you can go there, by the way, in MatthewPMBigelow.com. Why not just do that? Why not go to MatthewPMBigelow.com? Make a donation. We are podcasting 2.0 compliant. Get rid of your legacy podcasting apps and download Podverse. Download CurioCaster. This is uh, the new revolution in podcasting where we build on protocols. What that means is we avoid big tech and we use open source technology to make sure that the, the weirdness of big tech and their censorious nature to everything is avoided completely. Uh, and then you can decide what to do with that. So go to Podverse, go to Podcasting 2.0, check it out. You can also make donations via Satoshis, which are Bitcoin micropayments from a get albi wallet right to us so check it out or you can also donate via paypal at paypal.me forward slash japan wut that's paypal.me forward slash japan wut all right so more than 10 percent of japanese people have crossed 80 years or older for the first time Government data released on Saturday, Sunday ahead of Monday's Respect for the Aged Day nation, national holiday also showed that the share of Japan's population at 65 or older expanded to a record 29.1% from 29% a year ago. Ironically, the, the population of elderly people has declined, but the percentage of population of elderly people of the total has increased because we're doing a population decline now. The level compared with second-ranked Italy's 24.5%, blah, blah, blah. For decades, Japanese has seen its population shrink 
As a result, Japan has seen ballooning costs for elderly care. Um, around 12.59 million people are, eight, are age 80 or older, while 20 million are 75 years older, it's said. Uh, so there we go. We're relying on an elderly workforce. So there's that. Um, and there's, of course, fewer and fewer young people to make up for all the jobs that are going away. Now, when people say that Japan is overpopulated, and I tend to agree, and they say, well, the decrease in population will just mean there's fewer people and that'll be great. But Japan is a very complex society. We have nuclear power plants. We have um, advanced economies. We have shinkansens. We have train networks. We have, an, we have advanced corporations. So if you have like the, the bell curve of a population where on one end it's the stupid people and on the other end it's the super smart people and in the middle it's like everybody else like you and me. The, if you have like a massive decrease in the super smart people, then you have a where, where all of those aged people that are leaving the nuclear power companies and the, the CEOs and all that, you have a fewer, a much fewer amount of people who are able to fill those positions. And then as you know, the, the population declines as well, all of the people in the middle, well, are they going to be going into the military to fight for Taiwan? Are they going to be going into the restaurant industry to, to cut, make, cut, make up some of the slack that's going on there? Where are these people going to go? So we have this very complex with all the teachers and all the rural areas. Uh, you, there's like factories in the middle of nowhere that require quite advanced know-how on how to run and operate them. The fishing industry. Japan's a major shipbuilding nation as well. You think stupid people can understand how to build complex shipping networks? Some of the biggest ships in the world are made here. So as the population decreases, you have those tail ends Maybe there'll be a lot more, less, a lot fewer dumber people, but there's going to be way fewer smarter people that are able to fill in those positions. What about patent technologies and all that? And then what? So we have AI now, and all those people in the middle are going to see a lot of their job opportunities decreasing. So we're going to have like super average people in super elevated positions in society. Kind of sounds like idiocracy to me. Um, so there's this idea where people say, it's like the same people that say, uh, hey, we have a, uh, we need, just need more immigrants. You, you say we don't have enough space, but here's a forest. Just turn that into a city for the immigrants. <laughs> it's so low resolution. It's like, are you thinking of like colonizing America and Canada from Europe? Like we're wandering around looking for a river with some buggies so we can plant some trees and raise some hogs. I'm afraid that the people immigrating all over the world right now ain't looking for such opportunities in general, man. They want to be living in the city, living the high life, because that's what I wanted to do. That's why I moved to Japan. I didn't really impose myself on the place and demand everything kind of come out for me. You know, sometimes you do, but um, in general, it's like you just can't say, you just can't say these things. So the idea of like just fewer people, well, you're going to see a lot of the edges starting to fray. You're going to see a lot of like, okay, we just don't have enough people to power this nuclear power plant anymore. Then, you know, people say, well, just import solar panels. Just cover it with solar panels. Well, that's not going to do it. That's not going to cut it. Solar panels from where? China? Uh, so there's that. There's more as well. 86% of municipalities across Japan want for more foreign workers. There's that. 
editorial, college student quota shortfalls threatening nation's future. So for the first time more than on, since records began, more than 50% of Japan's private universities were not able to fill the quota of students. That sounds crazy, but in the past 30 years or so, there's been a major increase in Japan's private universities. So you drastically increase the amount of universities available while the population is decreasing. You're going to have a student shortage. But there we go again. So now you don't have enough students coming in. Now you, now you don't have enough uh, opportunities for teachers and things like that. So all these people that spent all their fortunes studying to become teachers, there's just nobody to teach anymore. Uh, what do you do with that? You close down the schools. Now the janitor doesn't have a job. All that stuff, the trickle down is crazy and it's going on and on and on. And it's not just merely like, well, just bring in some Vietnamese and build a house in a forest for them. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, now, this one's pretty uh, Japan labor market set for change as huge worker shortage looms. This is all happening. And it's happening. We are sliding down this really fast, really crazy. And this comes to us from Kyoto News. Uh, Japan's labor market may be at an inflection point as the nation braces for a shortfall of millions of workers. The spotlight is increasingly on the sustainability of wage growth. Japan's widespread seniority-based employment system, low labor productivity, and workers' reluctance to hop from one job to another have been among the factors behind the tepid wage growth for years. It kind of goes into all these things, but you just can't say like, well, we need um, AI to build all of the things. It's like AI is good at what I said before, like taking a like a list of things that you need tabulated and tabulating them. It's good at like facial recognition. But it's not really good at at picking stuff up and delivering things to other places. It isn't a factory, but it's not really good at that in, in any kind of human interaction where there's kids and dogs and balls and, and variabilities running around. So just to say, make AI do it is the same as saying, just import all the people from Vietnam. It's the same thing. There'll just be fewer people. It's good because it's overpopulation. It's low resolution madness. And as we're as we're as we're sliding towards this reality, it's gonna affect us all in unpredictable ways. Now, um hmm, interesting. We have a kind of a, a translated list of um people moving to Japan. So what happens when um we have a massive exodus of people from China and they want to come to Japan because we have a major increase in the amount of buildings going on right now in Tokyo, a facelift of a century is what I've heard it called as. And I see it all the time. You just heard it. That's some construction going on. And this comes to us from Kyozai.net, Toyokeizai.net. And I quite like this newspaper. They really helped me a lot in the pandemic because they had really accurate charts of what was happening. And this comes to us from uh, the notes. It's a Japanese article, but um, at cash that check, C-A-C-H-E, that check, uh, tabulated the points for us. So interesting write-up recently from Toyo Keizai about the influx of rich Chinese into Tokyo. A few takeaways from the article. Since 2022, over 20,000 Chinese with assets of over 1 million U.S. dollars have left China. 
Many are coming to Japan. Japan is easy to enter. Um, it's just a three-hour trip from Shanghai, Beijing, where most wealthy Chinese people are from. And visas are easy because if you invest 5 million yen, which used to be $50,000, but is now probably closer to 30 or 35, you can get a business resident visa. Um, Tokyo has many English international schools, making it attractive for people coming here from all over the world. And there's new high-class tower mansions or condominiums in prime areas of Tokyo because they are much cheaper, up to 40%, than the same style of residences in Beijing and Shanghai. So, like, um, these, some of the residence occupancy in these new super buildings that are going up in Tokyo are, like, 20% or Chinese, just right off the bat. Uh, Chinese people want to leave China, so they are coming to Japan. Um, and there's a long-standing history of Chinese people in Japan, so especially in Tokyo. You can, you can exist as a Chinese person in Tokyo and basically stay Chinese if you want to. Uh, Tokyo is comfortable for Chinese. Since 2018, Tokyo's Chinese population has grown by double-digit percentages in a majority of Tokyo's 23 wards. There is also a big online network and support system for Chinese living in Tokyo. Japan's Chinese population has grown by 60,000 people in six years. Uh, compare that to the Canadian population in Japan, which used to be at 10,000, and I'm assuming is going down, down, down. Um, anything else? There's a, well, some more information there. I'll be linking to it at MatthewPMBigelow.com. But there's like a networking, like the networking and the Asian people are just really crazy good. Uh, there are also Chinese businesses in Japan that help and introduce pro properties to Chinese so that they can buy real estate in Japan and get business visas. Um, so fantastic Fantastic. Very interesting. Fantastic. F uh, fascinating. To me, it's super fascinating. Uh, because on top of all of that, we'll get into that in a second. Do we have anything else? I think that's fine. So we have this um, exodus kind of happening in, China, in, in Japan. The, the young people aren't making as much money as they used to. And we see Japan being very attractive to foreigners of all sorts. But then we also have the idea of war. Die for the war. Everybody moves. Die for the good, for the good. Die for the war. Die for the war. I don't know if this is crazy propaganda or not. But um, it says, this comes to us from Bloomberg. Xi's security obsession turns Chinese citizens into spy hunters. <laughs> Students at some universities uh, were even asked to play an interactive training game called Who's the Spy? In what special way will the college students around you reinvigorate national security? The Ministry of State Security wrote in its new WeChat account. Um. So it says, like, uh, President Xi chaired a National Security Council meeting in May that stressed the importance of extreme case scenario thinking, a phrase that ruling party had previously reserved for describing natural disaster preparedness. China has since uh, passed a new anti-spy law accused 
consulting firms of working for overseas intelligence agencies and warned that foreign forces are infiltrating the energy sector. Um, so what's the headline here? I read it earlier. Do, 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 do into spy hunters. So what if the, the, the Chinese, the new Chinese diaspora in Japan, what if uh, like, you know, Chinese spies in Japan start accusing them of being spies? Uh, it's like we might be inviting like a massive security risk into Japan. Like here's some money, but here's also amount of security risk. And how many of those people, if they still have family back in China, would be willing to work with Chinese authorities for collecting intelligence and other information while in Japan living on their five-year business visas, whatever, however long they are. So the idea of, um, in, you know, folding a, f- a foreign threat into your immigration policy without thinking of it too closely in the situation in the world right now, a little bit nutty, uh, it's a little bit of a fringe idea. I kind of agreed. You might say it's like anti-Sino, and I don't think that at all. Um, probably like most of them are fine, and they'll be fine. And I, I, I used to want to be hanging out more with Chinese people, but actually these days I wonder if there is a risk. I do. I actually wonder if there's a risk. Like the amount of uh, tensions that are kind of boosting up, you know, long-term, uh, I kind of wonder, you know, who you should be hanging around with. Cause if shit hits the fan, are you going to be left with the shit? Or are you going to be left with the fan? Interesting to think about. We're going to wrap things up here pretty quickly, but with just a couple of things with the, um, war scenario, Ukraine will ask Japan to help with anti-drone technology. Again, that's, uh, the, the NATO allies, you know, in the proxy war in Ukraine, continually trying to rope Japan into getting uh, involved with the GOAT rodeo over there. And Japan kind of willingly goes ar- along with it. They kind of have to, but I don't think they should. They should just just say no <laughs> or provide them with some papers and a couple of contractors that don't really do much. Uh, and then Japan-Britain Defense Cooperation Pact to take effect in October. I don't, uh, that's just a very weird idea that J- like Britain, uh, all of these military powers in, in Europe right now, I don't think they really uh, uh, amount to much. They're like, America's been footing the bill over there for so long. They're all kind of like these these kind of weak people. I'm not sure what effect Japan and Britain can have with each other. It's it's a little little weird. Uh, anyways, so we're going to finish off the day here with some eating the bugs. That's the war. We'll finish with the war. Not much war, but the main point is, okay, all of this new high-rise stuff is going up. There's not enough rich Japanese people to take a part of the market. So fleeing Chinese people come into Japan and take up some of that market. Uh, but are, you know, where if, if the war breaks out between China and Taiwan uh, and Japan has to be a part of that, where do these kind of f- groups fit in with all of that? And it's, it's something to think about. It's like a back burner type of thing. It's not actually the front burner. I'm not trying to raise the alarms and send them all into some, prison camp in advance of, of, of a theoretical idea here. So that's war. 
die for the war. Everybody must die for the good, for the good. Die for the war, die for the war. We're going to finish with bugs. I'm going to eat all the bugs. Okay, you're just going to eat them one at a time, though, okay? Okay. I got one. I got one. I'm going to go catch that one. No, finish the one that you have in your mouth first. Now, I've been covering the bug eating situation in uh, the Japanese media for quite a while now. I didn't think I would be, but it's one of those things where I just research it, and then every week there's an article about it, how we all need to eat the bugs. And of course, this has to do with uh, the UN 2030 agenda and reducing carbon footprint and and making us all kind of these weird slaves in 15-minute cities. Uh, it's like, a, I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but the amount of effort being put into it just makes me kind of hate them so much. And this comes to us from Yahoo. It usually does. And this is called, Could Crickets Be the Optimal Solution to Avoid Food Shortages? Mr. Seya Ashikari, representative of Cricket Food Ecology. Um, and it begins. In recent years, haven't we heard more and more about cricket eating? Although it is often talked about in the context of the SDGs, it is often not explained why eating crickets contributes to the SDGs. It feels like the boom is spreading, even if the image remains vague. Therefore, the Jcast Company Watch editorial department conducted an interview with Seiya Ashikari, the representative director of Ecology Co. Limited, a startup company that promotes cricket eating. Mr. Ashikari is a notable person who studied crickets at Waseda University's graduate school, one of the top ones, and then went on to start his own business. He spoke to Mr. We spoke to Mr. Ashikari to find out more about the reality of eating insects. Ecology is a serious business. The company was founded in 2017. Uh, founder Ashikari entered Waseda University's graduate schools of advanced science and engineering in 2017. He entered a biological research laboratory and honed his skills in cricket farming techniques. First, we spoke to Mr. Ashikari about his career and the details of his encounter with crickets. Then he says, when I was a student at Waseda University, this is like a plug for Waseda University, I belonged to a group called, quote, Model United Nations. And this is where like the beep, 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 beep sound goes off. And I had the opportunity to learn about the issue of food sustainability. Beep, 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 beep. And I started thinking about solving food issues. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> That's the trigger. At the time, not only did I want to solve social issues on my own as a student, but I also learned that the Food Organization of the United Nations... Uh, 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 had published a report on eating insects, which I think was the trigger. Beep, beep, beep. Notice how it's like this really bright engineering guy, and he has like this whole thing ahead of him, and he enters a class from the UN on insect sustainability, and he's like, guess we all got to eat the insects now. <laughs> time, to, time to force that on anybody. I'm not going to read the whole article. I just thought it was interesting... Um, uh, how, like, right away the United uh, Nations convinced him to go down this insane road. Um, but we'll see. I mean, they always show, like, these pictures of, like, happy scientists, like, holding up a pile of bugs as if as if it's the best thing in the world and we're all going to eat it. Uh, I, I, I doubt it. But anyway, so that's today's 
bugs report. Usually the bug report follows this format. Japan has a culture of eating bugs. So that's why this company is making a, a giant factory that uh, farms a completely different type of bug to ground the bugs into insects to make bread and pancakes out of them for kids. It's like, what? That's usually the format. But this was an interview format today, and it's about a guy who was a very smart guy who went to university and went to a United Nations format thing and was immediately converted into the insane reality that these weirdo future people want us to live I'm sure he has a pillow of Klaus Schwab on his bed that he snuggles to every night. So that's going to be the Japan What Podcast for today, September 19th, episode 108. You found it, the Japan What Podcast, coming at you from the armpit of Asia in the Toshihisa Studios in Tokyo to Shinjuku, Japan. Until next time, everybody. Bugs.